Welcome to a special episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast series, this one focused on leadership. Today's world is short of a lot of things, hope, peace, prosperity, but what it lacks most is dynamic, innovative, global, values-based leadership. If we can find or nurture the right leaders, the rest will follow. Listen as two great leaders, scientist, inventor, and entrepreneur Fio Omanetto and social innovator and entrepreneur Bright Simmons discuss how great leaders can change everything. As part of the, of the, of the Talberg SNF Elias and Global Leadership Prize, we, um, we are two recipients of this prize. Uh, and, and we are here, we're here to have a conversation of between, between two friends, I would say, on, on, on where we are and what the prize has, has meant for us and how we're looking at things, uh, things that are happening. I guess the prize is about, is about global leadership. And I think it more, most importantly, it's about, uh, it's about trying to, trying to operate at the intersections of many domains to try to try to lend a hand to the large scale issues that are happening today. Uh, I suppose that we could fairly say that we are, the world is not necessarily in equilibrium today. Uh, you know, between uh, in twenty twenty between twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, there's been social unrest. There's been global pandemics uh, and uh, migrations and climate change and uh, all sorts of things. And I guess, I guess maybe there are great things that happen out of equilibrium. And we are we are two technologists, right? We are uh, we 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 like. Uh, <laughs> We like we like to to make things that uh, that help. So I guess maybe maybe the question is how do we help? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, I get you feel. So I I received the prize um, just at the point when I had suddenly come upon the realization that um, social entrepreneurship would have been a great thread through my work, a way in which I organize the very diverse things that I was doing. And, you know, I was always in need of a label because labels help sometimes. It makes you um, less stressed when you have to introduce yourself during the, during the dinner parties. So you need a label, right? And social entrepreneurship has, you know, has always been a great one for me. You know, I tell people, oh, I'm a social entrepreneur. And they say, well, what does that mean as well? I do entrepreneurship for the public interest. But sometime around 2017, when I, I was named a laureate to, alongside your very distinguished self, I was in a slight sense of personal crisis of identity uh, because I just felt social entrepreneurship was not enough. Of, you know, they just everybody now says what they do is social in in orientation and social in in focus. Um, so, but I was beginning to think that systems entrepreneurship is perhaps where the gap was. What we're all missing is how we deal with the externalities that our work creates. So, yes, a big even a big um, fossil fuels company nowadays says they are social in their, in their, in their focus uh, and their orientation. But it's true that the externalities of their work are not sufficiently captured by the atonement they make. So they may, you, may, you, may, you, know, you may do, um, you may buy carbon offsets as a big fossil fuel company. The question is whether, you know, just buying the offsets changes the systemic context that you create because you create context. And by creating context, are you able to address that by, you know, buying carbon offsets? I think not. And that is where I, I began to sense that the work we do as systems entrepreneurship by trying to not merely atone for our sins, but work 
to create systems that minimizes the harm that even if it's unintended that our work you know poses for other people was so critical that was where i was when the pride came so when you ask the question how can we help i think we have to begin to be clearer in this notion of universal values around what is it that our leadership obligations impose upon us as people who want to use change to address the impact of our own work. Because I think there's so many people that get so focused on the change they want to create that they are not looking at the social justice implications, dynamics within their own team and the psychological impacts of people that are working so hard to bring their vision to realization. So this system's perspective to me, the starting point of the cosmopolitanism of the Thorberg SNL price, right, is this cosmopolitanism. But the cosmopolitanism is not merely a geographical globalization type cosmopolitanism. I think it's also about the values of our work and how beyond an interdisciplinary and a multidisciplinary perspective, it creates a kind of holistic value system in our own work, in the work of everyone that we touch. I think that's where we are. I think I, I agree completely. One of the things that I can say is, is that interdisciplinarity, multidisciplinarity, you know, becomes much, much broader, right? It becomes, it, it's, it's almost transcends because as you said, you, it's um, impact, context, vision, perspective that all have to come together. And, and as, you know, as people that spend time in the lab trying to look at optimization of things and how to make something that will will be of impact for the greater good sometimes you tend to get you know one of the things that technologists do a lot is they tend to get uh get um channel vision and well they you know they fall like let's be romantic and they say that they fall in love yeah. with the things that they're working and they are so passionate about a problem that sometimes that sometimes that the broader context that that seems a bit that that seems a bit more more remote and context has been probably, in my mind, is probably more important than ever in these days where you really have to think about, uh, you know, about social implications, about, about footprints, about, uh, about justice, adoptability of what you invent and so on and so forth. So I think, uh, I think this is one of the, one of the challenges where, uh, where in fact being exposed to, to people that really are outside of your field, but think about these things uh holistically as you said is uh is is quite is quite powerful and it's a very different change of context for for us technologists i would say mm-hmm. i mean you you are a precision technologist so your strength is your ability to drill down to the utmost essentials and to be particularly rigorous and you know in the social sciences which is one of the various dimensions of my past we, 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 there, there's been this long-standing struggle between structure and agency. Do we focus on the elementals which together can create um, a meaning? So for you, so the work that you do in nanomaterials and other types of materials, microstructures, how do you build that into a greater world, right? And then we come at it from you know, this recognition of the tension between that approach and the approach that says, well, is the structure that gives meaning? So the work that you do in the precision, the rigor, the extraordinary creativity uh, of solving problems at the micro scale, which then has massive mass macrocosmic implications, is very powerful. Then the question then becomes, yes, but what about those that are working to meet you halfway? So the people that set up the neural models, the business models, etc., so that your work will find full meaning. Um, and you remember when we were, you know, I mean, many, many years ago, in the early stage of academic career, 
you you, you know people take a course in psychology um, and then this whole structure and agency thing is transformed into another debate between elementalism and guest out theory so the idea is okay no things don't build up elementally into meaning but it's the structure which gives meaning to the minor elements and that has also been under tension between my life because sometimes i come to your side of the world where i do um, really high in uh, precision software engineering so we build tools that do predictive analytics and you know I, i've seen myself involved in conversations where we are arguing about algorithms and does this optimize a prediction does this optimize a pattern recognition um, and then I have to get out of there and go and fight some bureaucrats who thinks um, anything that lets them lose control damages their sense of self. <laughs> so in moving between that micro uh, precision and the rigor and, you know, working with people that have very easy to assimilate values. So if you're working with uh, mathematicians and you have these common values in rigor and precision, it's very easy to align. When you move out of anything in that domain to people that have really disparate values, so some bureaucrat who thinks that control is the only notion of leadership, you find out that it's harder to find common ground. And I think that's one of the challenges we have. In our disciplinary work, it's so much easier to align with professionals with whom sharing values around the work we do is so simple because of all these assumptions we already have about the necessity of rigor and the importance of precision. But when you move out into the broader world and you have to deal with people on values that are less precise, hazy values, uh, fuzzy values, fudgy values, um, I think that is where the challenge then begin to become overwhelming at times. So how do we meet in the middle? I mean, I think that this is, a, you know, this is a long, uh, a long debate that people have in different contexts, AI being probably the most obvious one, right, that you're talking, that, that, you've, that you've alluded to in a certain sense. But can we bring more precision to the fuzzy world? And uh, does more awareness of fuzziness help in precision? Good question. So the average person wants the big picture, right? But the big picture is very hard because if you're a scientist and you're working on vaccines, your, your approach is to be precise. To say, look, look, the data tells us that this is the degree to which you are danger if you take a vaccine. And this is what the data tells us that the degree to which you are danger for black clots. And people don't think like that in their normal lives. And I think all of us have that problem where in our disciplinary work, we really grind to the, the minimals and the minimalism and, 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 and the essentialism. And then when it comes to how we live our ordinary lives, we have to do with bigger picture things. I think, the, I don't think obviously I have an answer in terms of how we do the bridging, but I think first of all, we need to be humble to realize that if we took the things we know a lot about and we compared it to the things we ought to know something about, it's infinitesimal, it's very small. Um, our, the areas where we are certain is tiny. And the areas in which we are uncertain are all the important things. So from you in microstructures and me in software optimization, we just have to acknowledge that that part of where we are confident. Is, so the crisis of confidence is inherent because we don't know much about our own domains, but we have to make an impact beyond our domains. Um, and I think that is where the crisis stems from. So I, I think humility is the way we we reconcile. I, I think you're right, but so uh, but so the question is, um, do we need to talk to each other more, and and will we listen to each other? I mean, the in more, with, more, with more humility, yeah. right? So humility has to be sort of with more humility. humility and empathy, probably are universal values and empathy. universal values that will bring us together, which means which which are very uncommon things to talk about as uh, as technologists, I think, or at least they were probably. Uh, they, they weren't um, 
they weren't pillars of, uh, of, of the research that we do. We think very much about hard data and most, most of the time. And, and, I think that, uh, and I think that one of the things that is very important is that we cannot be devoid of, uh, of thinking, thinking about things in a, in a much, much more global, uh, more global context uh, these, these days. So, so, so how's it going? So how's it going, Brian? Are you, are you, are you, are you, are you, do you, do you see these things with optimism at this point or with pessimism? No, no, I agree with you completely. I think, I think, like I said, um, these, these kind of monolithic worldviews that come about when one way of seeing the world wins over other ways of winning the world. Um, We have some, we have some reason to be optimistic because we think at the very least, the process that we are embarked upon, that process will will endure. People will begin to ask more questions rather to force more answers. And, I, and that's what gives me optimism because I think more and more the, the lack of clarity about everything due to the fact that all of us are narrowly embedded in our domains, that lack of clarity is becoming more and more evident. So I'll give you an example. During the lockdown period, I was in Ghana and there was a debate about whether we should lock down or we shouldn't lock down. And obviously, those of us that are data-oriented were like, but where is the data? I mean, what, what does it show that non-pharmaceutical interventions work well this way or that way? And when I looked at the actual literature, it's unbelievably shallow about you know, how any of this stuff works. And now we know, for instance, that some of the guidance around six-meter distances, et cetera, et cetera, none of that is grounded in hard data. But people have to make decisions, big holistic decisions. Now, the question was, were you making those decisions saying, look, collectively as a society, we're looking to ask the right questions in order to drive the right inquiry, or you are doing that as an authoritative, technocratic expert imposing your will on others. Um, And I think that was what, for me, convinced me that we ought to be on the optimistic route. Um, People are just going to increasingly ask more questions and increasingly be less confident that the answers they have are certain. Um, And that is a world that is better to live in, as far as I'm concerned, a world of increasing inquiry, a world of... um, um, constructive and productive doubt, a world of constructive and productive doubt, which is the world we grew up in, right? In our professions, right? Do you know leaders, young or old, who are changing the world, who are not content with what is and are willing to work for what could be? If so, nominate them for the Telberg SNF Eliason Global Leadership Prize at telbergprize.org. That's T A L L. B-E-R-G-Prize.org. I would say that that asking questions from all sides also is giving is giving a lot of perspective, and I think that this is one of the things that I found particularly energizing about being being around uh, some of the people in the in the Talberg network is that there's, there's very few people that are that are overlapped to my area of research. Uh, you know, the anecdote that I have. To follow yours is is we do we do talks with Berkeley with Berkeley College of Music with the Berkeley Global Jazz Institute, and uh, that is run by two by two wonderful people by Danilo Perez and Marco Pignataro and uh, and I give scientific talks I tell them what we do in the lab the questions that I get have always been incredibly incredibly stimulating because they are about they they don't go into the details this is not to say that the details are not important. But they go immediately into into a more holistic view, as you said. So, what is the fit? They they say first of all, how can I get it, and then when when can I get it, and then they ask about fairness, about adoptability, about the distribution of these things, and then they ask how can they help, 
and and they generally are incredibly interested in the technology. So all the questions are uh, that that follow are very are very interesting. But it's but but the thing that strikes me is really how how they see integration of these things in in a system that affects that affects everybody immediately. And there's a much more uh, a much more in, integrative uh, view of uh, of technology, which I think then goes back to to the types of questions that you ask and the importance of the questions that you ask. And also the willingness to be able to field questions, because because I think that being that being part of a discussion, being and being part of a constructive discussion comes comes from the ability to the ability to do that. As technology innovators, how do we take more responsibility for the effects, even when that was not our intent? And that is where we distinguish ourselves from ideologues. We can have great conviction in our work, we can have great conviction in our intent, but we are more humble when we look at the effects and say, well, this is not what we intended to achieve. We are sorry for it. We'll do our best to steer it towards something else. And I think that is what makes us social technologists. Well, uh, well, Bright, you know, uh, maybe we can distill our conversation by saying that perhaps uh, humility, um, empathy, and asking questions from all perspectives is, uh, is, is that are the three are the three pillars to to help us to help us you know get to 2022 and 2023 and onwards i completely accept that i think the question was what are the bases for proposing some kind of global and universal values which indeed are, is the hallmark of the Talbeck uh, network that, and i think our answer is that humility empathy and inquiry are the foundations of true universalism because true universalism has embraced doubts. At the same time, must have conviction in itself as the driving force. How do you synthesize those two contradictions? Embracing doubt and having conviction in a particular global and universalistic project. It's, I think we are not the first, obviously, to, to grapple with that. Uh, the work <laughs> of the encyclopedists, <laughs> the work of the encyclopedists in the Renaissance uh, and, yeah. and in different parts of um, um, the, the world, um, in, in different intellectual traditions around the world, uh, have been trying to do it for, many, for a very long time. But I think as technologists, we know that your holistic intent is not always what you achieve. Because we've seen it so many times, where we build technology and assume a certain effect, and it's had a runaway um, impact. On, on, on. And so we, we are more likely, I think, to play a role in this universalism that the Tobek um, network seeks to advance by bringing inquiry back to the center. Because if I, was, if I ever had this view that I knew what the effect of a particular approach would be, then I'm not building real technology. Because right. real technology, you get what I'm, I'm saying, real technology, it's it derived from the doubt. Um, so I think we we are very well positioned to make our voices heard. Yeah. Um, in, yeah. I cannot I cannot agree more. And I think um, and I think that on these the, this note, you know, I can say I can say that it's always it's always great to talk to you, Bright. And I can't wait to see you in person. And here's to here's to seeing you soon. Wonderful, Phil. It's always a delight and a pleasure. Yeah. And I look forward to seeing you very soon. Thank you. And thank you all. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening. Now it's your turn. Tell us what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can subscribe to our newsletter at telbergprize.org. Thanks again, and most importantly, don't forget to nominate a leader whose work deserves to be recognized and imitated. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.